Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Mike Vax. Mike is an iconic trumpet player who achieved stardom as lead trumpet in the legendary Stan Kenton orchestras during the 1970s. Mike is an avid educator and clinician, and he helped design one of the best-selling signature mouthpieces of all time. Mike has no shortage of stories or insights into the world of professional trumpet playing, and his love for music comes through in absolutely everything he does. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, thank you for joining us today. And on this episode, I have the one and only Mr. Mike Vax. Mike, what's up, man? It's been a while. Like everybody, you know, I'm trying to deal with all this craziness and and uh, and uh, keep myself busy and occupied. And of course, as uh, as you know, it's, it's a little bit of a sad thing because a couple of days ago should have been the very end of the Stan Kenton Legacy Orchestra Tour, which was just going to be great. It was going to be, let's see, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, and Texas. Man. So we were, going to do, we were going to do quite a bit of traveling and uh, had some great, great venues. And, uh, and the band was going to be killer as usual. And, and uh, of course, had to cancel everything. And then <laughs> one of the big things was I had to deal with the airlines trying to get refunds for about $8,000 worth of uh, uh, airline tickets. And luckily, I got refunds on most of them. So, hey. you know, that, that was a positive, I guess, if you can say. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's one of those things. My, my festival that I produce in Prescott, Arizona is supposed to happen August 28th through 30th. And I'm hoping like mad that that things open up enough that we can still do that festival. I got a whole bunch of great musicians lined up to come. And other than that, I think like a lot of people, I'm trying to do a little bit of practicing, you know, try to get in, oh, maybe an hour to two hours a day. And of course, with, with all of the, you know, being bored, some of it is just like in front of the TV playing long tones and flexibilities <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But, hey. you know, to try to keep the chops up a little bit. Right. And, uh, but then you keep thinking, okay, I'm keeping my chops up, but when am I going to play another gig? <laughs> uh, that's true. That's you true. Know, so, you know, you got to stay as positive as possible. And some point or other, this is going to be over and maybe we'll actually get back to playing together again. Uh, that would be great. And, you know, of course, in uh, honor of you being here with me, I have for my drink today, this is something special that I came up with. It's called a little minor booze. So, <laughs> you know, there's a great, of course, that's the Willie Maiden tune that we recorded on live at Redlands uh, University album. And on the liner notes of the album, it says a little minor blues because Stan was worried about putting the word booze on the album when we were selling it to all the kids. But when we played it, he announced it as a little minor booze. And of course, if you knew Willie Maiden, uh, uh, then that title was just hilarious because Willie was, you know, one of the true geniuses, I think, of, of all time in big band writing and such a great player. But 
you know, uh, in all deference to, to him and rest, may he rest in peace. I think he's one of the people that I never saw sober, but I never saw drunk. <laughs> he had a way of just being like right there all the time, you know. And, uh -huh. so, and so it was like he drank beer in the daytime, then he had a steak for dinner, then he switched to vodka. That was his routine. And all of his riding was done on the bus. He had a great big plywood uh, board that was cut the size, remember the old manuscript paper yeah. for big bands? And that, that board was cut to that, and he would get this manuscript paper out, and he would write, and it was like going, it was like a movie sped up. And one time I said, Willie, how can you arrange that fast? And all of the scores were transposed. And I said, how can you arrange that fast? He said, I'm not arranging, I'm transposing. And I mean, I'm, he said, no, I'm transcribing. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, the arrangement's already finished in here. All I'm doing is putting it down on paper. Oh, that's awesome. He heard whole arrangements in his head and then wrote them down. And I remember Clinton Romer in the office saying, Willie was, was really one of the few writers in all the time that Willie was writing, there was never a mistake in one of his scores. Really? <laughs> so, you know, so that's where a little minor booze came from. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah, I was uh, getting ready for my interview with you, uh, and I wanted to uh, dive back into the Canton just to get me get me in the right headset, uh, listen to, to uh, that live at Redlands, and man, that was just, I remember that from the first time I heard it back in the 70s. Um, and yeah, that was uh, early in my introduction to the Canton band and particularly to your playing. And there's just some amazing stuff on there. Man, that band. You know, it, that, there's so many stories around that recording. It's probably one of the most iconic in Stan's many years of history. That was the first recording on his new label on Creative World. Mm -hmm. That's after he had quit Capital because Capital had shelved most of his stuff and they were wanting him to do uh, stuff from musicals and all this and, you know, Stan didn't want to do that. So he quit Capital, started his own company, Creative World. He became wigged out about it. I mean, it was like he was scared to death, but he did it. And so it was recorded in August of 1970 and the band reformed in May of 1970 and uh, went on the road. And because uh, he hadn't been on the road full time for quite a few years because he had been, been home with his kids when he and Ann Richards got divorced. And, and he married uh, uh, his wife, Joanne, who's just amazing. And uh, um, so anyway, the story goes, we're gonna do the Redlands album. Oh, first of all, in, in 1970 in May, this is still amazing to me. A few days ago, May 2nd, was the 50th anniversary of my joining the Canton Band. Oh, really? <laughs> it's hard to believe. And the interesting thing is, when I took an audition for the band, Jim Karchner, the lead player before me, had heard me play in the Bay Area. They had me come and do an audition. Uh, and then they called me a few days later. This is late April of, of 1970. And, and Dick Shearer, the you know, trombone and road manager, called me and said, okay, Vax, you made the band and we leave on May 2nd. Well, my heart sank. It's like I hadn't thought about the fact that I didn't get out of the Navy till the fall. 
I was I was still in oh. the Navy. And so uh, Stan said, well, listen, I want you to make a couple calls, but I'm going to make a couple calls uh, and I'll see what I can do. To this day, I don't know who Stan talked to. Could have talked to President Nixon. I don't know who he talked to, but I was out of the Navy May 1st and I joined the band May 2nd. <laughs> He actually got me out of the Navy about, I don't know, three, four months early. That's great. And so I joined the band. I'm just third trumpet player, not Maynard's third trumpet chair of the high notes, but just third trumpet player. And right before the Redlands album, um, which was, I say, early August of 1970, Jim Karchner had a brain tumor and he didn't know it. And he was having a lot of medical problems and chop problems and and uh, he died a few years later, he died very young. But he, he was honest enough, he went to Stan, uh, this was three days before the Redlands album was gonna be recorded. He went to Stan and said, I don't wanna mess up the recording. I cannot play lead on the album. I don't know what's going on, but I, I just can't do it. So, Two days before, now we're in Denver at the Friendly Frontier Hotel, which is an old historic hotel. It's not there anymore. And we were playing Elitch's Gardens, which is a, uh, was a big uh, uh, playland and had a big ballroom. And, uh, and so Friday night, we, we play the ballroom. Saturday morning, Stan and Dick call me down to, the, to have breakfast with them. And I'm thinking as I'm going down the elevator, why am I getting fired? I'm just the third trumpet <laughs> player. What is this? You know, come on. And, you know, I'm thinking, because Stan was thinking of just going back to using big names from L.A. for He was so worried about this, this recording. And I have to interject that not long before the recording, actually, Willie Maiden went to Stan and said, listen, Stan, you've always used your road band. He said, these kids, they're not known, but they're playing your music as good as anybody ever has. He said, if you... Uh, if you use any ringers, you can't record any of my charts. And oh. that sort of brought Stan back a little bit. But so anyway, I'm going down and I'm thinking, well, I'm getting fired. I've only been in the band three months. What, what, what do I tell the people in San Francisco when I go home? I go down, we have breakfast. They're making small talk. And I'm thinking, you sons of bitches, if you're going to fire <laughs> me, just do it. And um, and uh, are we allowed to use four-letter words? Oh, we're allowed to use four, five, six, seven-letter words. I just have to quote Stan. Yeah. So, so um, after breakfast, this is like indelible in here. After breakfast and all this small talk, and I'm sitting there thinking, what are you doing? Stan's drinking his coffee, and the coffee cup stops halfway down, and he stares at me. It seemed like forever. And he says, the trumpet section is really fucked up. And I'm thinking, here it comes. And the next thing out of his mouth is, can you handle a lead book? And I said, yeah, I can handle the lead book. And he said, good, and it better be right Monday night when we start recording. <laughs> no pressure. A little bit of pressure. Huh? And so uh, Saturday night, we played at Elitch's, played the dance book mainly, not the charts we were going to record. Sunday, we flew to L.A., went out to Redlands University in the bus. Um, um, at a short rehearsal. And then Sunday night, we played like three or four tunes for the kids, uh, you know, to start the, the, the week-long camp. Monday night, we started recording, okay? Um, and what you have to remember is, most of that stuff, I had never played lead on. 
Right. I've been playing third trumpet. So mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff on the Redlands album, I'm basically sight reading the lead parts. And, and uh, the fir very first tune, the very first tune we had to record is Here's That Rainy Day with the, one of the most famous, scariest one bar solos in the history of trumpet sections. Uh huh. You know, and uh, <clears throat> so the very first thing I had to record on the very first major recording session in my life in front of a thousand people was Here's That Rainy Day. <laughs> and you did it. Well, you know what? Here, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I warmed up a little bit. This is pretty scary to do, but, but I'll, I'll try it. So this is that the, the, the band plays and then Stan plays an eight-bar eight solo. Right. And then everything stops and the lead trumpet player comes in by himself for one bar has to start at mezzo forte, end up triple forte. The band comes in triple forte, and then you got to play the rest, the rest of the uh, of the uh, phrase. <clears throat> we'll see how I do. That was the very first thing I had to play, uh, and and, um, uh, and it's on the record. I did it, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, so you know we record. I think I think we recorded it was either three or four nights at the camps, and all of the kids in the camps were were uh, in the in the audience, plus hundreds of other people that came uh, for the recording session. So we do that recording. It comes out. I don't remember when, probably October or something like that. The interesting thing is that that record got, it's the only five-star review Stan ever got in Downbeat. Including really? the ones that won the Grammy, like West Side Story and, and, and Adventures in Jazz got four stars. It was the only five-star review that the Kenton Band ever got and uh, it was Jim Zantor, great writer that wrote, wrote it. And, um, uh, and the in other interesting thing is that uh, um, that was the very first Creative World recording in 1970. And of course, Creative World went until Stan passed away in 1979. Then there was the last recording, I think. Well, there's, there is one that's, that, that's out uh, called The Last Concerts that was 78. But of all of the recordings done in the 1970s, Redlands was by far the biggest selling album. Yeah. Even of everything after it, Redlands was by far the biggest recording, the yeah. biggest selling recording. Well, it's just, it's, it's a great recording. And, you know, I, in fact, for me, as I was listening to it, it was just, I mean, I love studio production. I, don't get me wrong. I, I love the, the slickness of a, of a well-produced studio album, but there's just something about a live recording like that. Uh, and there's something about that band in particular. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm a few years younger than you, but I, I still was able to hear a lot of the, you know, the Kenton band, the, you know, Woody Herman, obviously the, the Ferguson band, uh, Buddy's band, uh, you know, every band had their own feel. They had their own, 
you know, the, the, it has a, you know, the personality. But there was a something that was so unique about that Kenton band, the sound, that wall of sound. You know, it just was, it was something to, to inspire you. And, you know, that solo that you played, that, that opening solo that you had there on uh, Here's That Rainy Day, I've played that and I've butchered it so many times. So <laughs> I used to have to judge high school bands, you know, but when all that stuff was really popular and everybody had tried to play it and everything, I, the minute I saw on the judging sheet they were going to play it, I felt sorry for the fr little first trumpet kid. I only heard maybe out of, I don't know how many dozens of bands, only one or two kids that ever sort of got through it. It's scary because when you have to start by yourself and you're not very loud and you've got to get up to as loud as you need to be for the band to come in and then keep playing the phrase, you know, I, I, I even saw a couple of high school kids almost collapse trying to play it. Yeah, well, you know, and that's an interesting thing because um, I know that that's a big thing with you. I mean, it's a big thing with me also. It's the mindset, you know, you're, you're, the way you approach your music, the way you're thinking about music and I know when I was much younger, I would just freak myself out on stuff like that. I would I would get myself afraid to play it. You know, I'm thinking the whole song. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Here it comes. And by the time it got to that point, I've I've got myself out of the game. And because you've had to do tunes like that, you've had to do. I mean, my God, the the, the tunes you've done with the Kenton Band alone, not including all the other stuff that you you've done over the years. But you know, how, how do you approach? the mental game of your playing? I mean, how do you approach being that, that featured voice? Well, you know, I think a, a lot of it is, to me, it's all uh, positive thinking. You know, the, uh, the books that I've recommended to people are The Inner Game of Music and Psycho-Cybernetics, things like that. Also for breathing, the yoga science of breath. And, and but so much of it is the be Here's the best way I can describe it. I use this in my clinics, especially for the younger kids. And even today, most of the young kids know. Remember the little engine that could? You remember oh, that yeah. record? And the little engine had to take over for the big engine because the big engine got sick and it has to get over the mountain. And I, said, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And so that's supposed to be a positive image for young people. Well, in the clinics, I say, as a trumpet player, that's not good enough. If you only think you can, you may not. If you know you can, you'll do it every time. There you go. If you know you can, it's like, uh, here again, I can't, I can't believe I'm doing this with, with about a five minute warm up before I had a chance to, but you have to know you can. There's no question in my mind about that. There's yeah. no question. I know what it feels like. I know what it sounds like. I know what it feels like here. I know what it feels like here. Okay, so I think that's the thing that most young players have to learn. And, you know, I think a lot of times uh, uh, people that, you know, when I go and do a clinic at a school, the band writes, oh yeah, Vax is coming in, man, all my trumpet players will play double C's tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's, um, uh, it's interesting to see the looks on the kids' faces, but also the band director's faces, when I say, <clears throat> you know, 
if I knew a shortcut, if I knew a real shortcut, I would be a multimillionaire. I don't know any shortcuts. If you're not willing to put the time in, if you're not willing to practice, if you're not willing to have patience, if you're not willing to just keep going and going and going until it's right, then you're never going to get to that I know stage. You know, it's, too many young people, they hardly practice at all, even if they're taking private lessons, they just go in and play in, in band, you know, and, and it's fun, to, it's fine to have, have music as a hobby, that's fine. But even if it's a hobby, shouldn't you want to do it as good as possible? If you're going to play golf, don't you want to play as good as possible? If you play tennis, whatever, you know, uh, one of the other things I use is that, that you because of the practice thing, because you have to just have that desire and that drive, if you want to be the world's greatest bricklayer, how much do you want to be the world's greatest bricklayer? And I used to have a sign when I did a, a lot of private lessons and in my studio at University of Pacific and other colleges, and it was behind me, and it said, how much do you want to, how much do you want to play trumpet with two, three question marks? And students knew that if they came in and said, I don't have much time to practice this week, I was just going to point at the sign. Or that exercise is just too hard, I can't play it. They knew I was going to point at the sign. How much do you want to do it? But isn't that the same with everything in your life? Yeah. How much do you want to do something and how much are you willing to put into it so that you become really good at it? So, yeah. you know, there are no there are no shortcuts, there are no secrets. I wish there were. I wish I knew what they were and I could just impart them in a day, you know. But I think two of the biggest secrets that young people have to learn are practice and the word slow. Because mm. Too many people practice too much stuff too fast. What does that mean? You're learning mistakes. And since your brain works like a great computer, you know, if I, if I type a letter in my computer and I don't use spell check, and a year later I print the letter out, the words that I misspelled are still going to be misspelled because the computer learned it wrong. Well, that's what happens when you practice too fast and you don't take the time to really make it Great. What happens? You've learned mistakes. Every time you play, your brain spits out those mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, and I, well, I can't remember who told me, but uh, someone saying that uh, there's a difference between uh, practicing to get better, especially as a, as a trumpet player or a musician, uh, there's practicing to get better and there's practicing for the people and the other people in the practice rooms. And too many people practice that way. They only want to practice what they're good at, what they can already do, which sometimes they call musical masturbation. Uh, so you're, you're just practicing to impress people as opposed to practicing to improve because the truth of the matter is the stuff that you need to practice is the stuff you can't do and it's the stuff that's going to sound the worst because you've got to work it out. You've got to smooth the rough edges. And I, you know, I, I'm with you 100% on that. So, uh, and, and a, I, that's something that I, I, I do in, in my profession, uh, not being a full-time professional musician, but in coaching people in martial arts and in personal development and things like that. It's like, you've got to understand 
that there's a cost for everything. And, you know, if you're willing to pay the cost, if you're willing to pay that price in, in the time and the energy it puts into it, the commitment, then you'll get it. There's no doubt in my mind that you're going to get it. But if you're, you're hedging your bets, you know, don't be surprised when you end up five, 10 years down the road and you're not where you want to be. So you, you got to go all in. Exactly. And when, you know, and, and the way I describe it in my clinics is if you sound good all the time when you practice, you're practicing the wrong stuff. You know, if you're sounding really great in the practice room or in your, in your bedroom at home or whatever, uh, well, that means, okay, you ain't going to get better because that's, as you say, you're just going over the stuff that, that feeds your ego because you can already play it. Uh, I have a great story. Do you know the name George Geiger? I do not. George Geiger is got to be one of the finest trumpet players in the world. He's, he lives in Budapest, Hungary. And for years and years and years, he's been the first trumpet in the Hungarian radio orchestra. And uh, uh, this guy can play anything. There's, there's been all these modern uh, sonatas and stuff written for him that are so ridiculous you know, angular and, 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 and weird intervals and all this stuff. He just eats them up like they're nothing. This guy is unbelievable. And if you, if you go on YouTube, you can find George Geiger, but it's spelled G-E-O-R-G-Y. But, but of course, in, in Hungarian, that's George. And, and then Geiger, G-E-I-G-E-R. And there's all kinds of stuff of him on, 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 uh, online. Anyway, uh, when I was going to Hungary a lot because I got in with a with a big time promoter over there, so I was going over two or three times a year to tour, and George and I became very very good friends. In fact, we first became friends at the Albuquerque Trumpet International Trumpet Guild convention. Somebody introduced us, and he was a big Kenton fan, and so we went out to dinner, and he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Hungarian. <laughs> And 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 uh, and I knew a few words in German, and that's all he spoke. So, you know, but we had the greatest time. We became fast friends. So when I would go to Hungary, I'd go to his uh, to his house, and hang out with him, and have dinner and stuff with he and his daughter and his wife. And he had a little studio upstairs. And one day, he's practicing in his studio, this thing that most of us would look at and tear up. Okay. <laughs> And he's, he can't get it. He's going over and over and it's, it's almost getting worse. And all of a sudden I burst out laughing and he got really offended and, and ran downstairs because his daughter used to interpret for us, ran downstairs, got his daughter. They come up and she says, why are you laughing at my father when he's having trouble? And I said, because I finally figured out he's human. <laughs> I'd never heard him struggle with anything before, and it just broke me up. So once he realized that, it was cool, you know. But um, uh, uh, so even even the greatest, and of course, one of the things that Bud Herseth loved to talk about was, I don't ever practice, I always perform. He figured even when he was working on things that he had to perfect, he's still performing. And, you know, I, I, was, I was very close with Ren Shilke and, and we used to hang out with him a lot. And of course, had the mouthpiece with him. 
And, and um, uh, so anytime the Kenton Band was in Chicago, or after when I was in Chicago, if I had time, I'd be at Shilke's all day. And um, he used to, uh, I'd come in and he'd say, oh man, let's play some duets. <sighs> okay, we'd go in the, that front room where you try horns and we'd play duets. And sometimes I'd have to say, Ren, I gotta stop, I gotta play a concert tonight. <laughs> and so one time I asked him, I said, Ren, what is it? You have all these great classical players that come in here. What is it with me having, you have to play duets with me? And his answer was, well, you're one of the few people I can hear when I'm playing. <laughs> Ren really was one of the loudest players I ever heard. Just amazing, amazing. Really? You know, and um, uh, so, you know, and of course, the, back with the Ren Schilke thing, uh, when we first went to Chicago, again, this is, this is coming up. I'm, I mean, I'm going to look. It's funny that I have, I found my 1970 date book. Oh, man. My old Kenton stuff. And I will tell you, just a minute here, I'm going to look it up because it's coming up. The day the 13A4A A4, A4 mouthpiece was invented. Uh, Friday, May 8th, 1970. Coming up. That was 50 years ago. That was the day ago. that I, I, I'd gone in a couple of times because we stayed in Chicago a lot. And that was early on in the tour. And I'd hung out with him. And, and um, I was playing a Reeves. I wasn't really happy with the backboard was too small. And, and uh, uh, he had made something from a Giardinelli 3M. And so I had just, I'd been, I'm not a big mouthpiece switcher. Uh, and, and so between those two, I went to him and I said, Ren, it's not quite working out. And we spent the day and he basically looked at stuff and then he had that old lathe that he used to make stuff and and he made two or three different mouthpieces for me and I said, uh, I don't like that one. And he made another one. Yeah, I like that one, but I want it, uh, I, I, I want it not so sharp an inner rim, like I don't want like a Bach inner rim and I want it fairly flat and you know, and so we went through this stuff. I think we've made maybe four or five. And, and then out of that day, in one day, we came up with the Schilke 13A4A mouthpiece, which for many years was his largest selling mouthpiece. Yeah. You know, and, and um, uh, uh, so to this day, the mouthpieces that I have played, very little change. They've been based on a 13A4A. I played the 13A4A for 26 years. Um, and then uh, when I went with Yamaha, uh, it was basically a business decision being a, well, I'll go backwards. What, when Ren, before Ren passed away, uh, he called me up and he, and he said, you, you, you still want to do clinics for me? Because I'd always want to do clinics for him. And he said, uh, and I, and he, well, he, but when he was alive, there were no clinicians. And I'd been doing clinics for old con for years. And because uh, I got Don Jacoby's job when Don retired from doing clinics. Okay. So, um, um, Ren calls me up. This is not long before he passed away. He says, you still want to do clinics for me? And I said, well, Ren, of course I do. He said, fine, that's all I need to know. And he hung up. He passed away not too long afterwards. And I couldn't go to the funeral. I was booked someplace. I couldn't make it. And so that the week afterwards, Joan, his daughter, called me up and said, listen, Dad wanted you to be the first clinician. Do you want to do that? I said, of course I want to do that. 
So technically, I was the very first Schilke clinician. Wow. And, and um, still playing the 13A4A. And, and uh, uh, I had been playing on a B6 on the, on the, on the Kenton band. And then, of course, what, what, what transpired, this is so funny. <laughs> when, when, when I was on the Kenton band, Khan, that's when Khan started really uh, sort of schmoozing me because Don Jacoby had told him about me. And so I went to Ren and I said, Ren, Khan is really after me to become a clinician for them. And he said, well, that's great. He said, you know, I'm, I don't have any clinicians. We got the mouthpiece deal. We're fine. And, and I said, well, you, you won't mind that if I, if I play a con trumpet. He said, listen, this is Ren Schilke. If you can get with con, you take them for every penny you can. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And so he had no, so I played con for 10 years. Right. And, and um, then when, when, uh, when Ren passed away, uh, that was right after uh, Danny Hankin had bought Kahn and uh, uh, everything changed. That was when United Musical Instruments was just starting and he was buying a lot of companies and and uh, he wanted, this is so funny because he wanted Doc Severinsen to come with Kahn. And I was really the main clinician for Kahn. Well, I get calls from four or five of the district managers after the first meeting and they, they said, we hate to tell you this, but I don't. I don't think Danny Hankins going to push you anymore. He's so all he'll talk about is Doc Severinsen. So uh, they said you should probably maybe find another company or something. I don't know. Whatever you think. And then and then some of some of the district managers quit because it just wasn't the same as Con had been. So anyway, <clears throat> um, uh, th this is just before the, all the Shilky stuff uh, uh, happens. And so I went down to they were moving the factory. Uh, to, I think it was uh, Nogales, uh, Arizona. I can't remember now, it was, the old, it was the old Reynolds factory. They were moving the contractor. And I went down there and they let me design a horn, which was a 60B valve section, an 8B artist model, the big bell, right. uh, a lead pipe from a con director because it was straight through. And so I got to design this horn. This horn, I still have it. This horn is a killer horn. Everybody that's ever tried it, it was one made, the prototype. That's when Danny Hankin took over. And so these, everybody's saying, you know, it's probably not going to work out. So Danny gets, when they, when they moved the factory from Oak Brook, Illinois, I mean the offices from Oak, Oak Brook, Illinois to Elkhart, Indiana, uh, Doc has an office there. He's never in the office. It says, Doc Severinsen, Vice President of Research and Development. Okay, but Doc's never there. And so they couldn't make a horn doc liked. So they called up Dick Ackwright in Oakland, you know, very famous in repairman and horn maker. And Dick and I have been friends for oof, more than 50 years. And uh, so they call up Dick Ackwright. Doc goes with Dick Ackwright and they start working on a horn. And basically Doc says, 
out of hell with corn. Let's just make our own horn. And that's how the bel canto horn came about. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> from from corn talking to Dick Ackright. So anyway, then, you know, they made the bel canto. Well, about that time then is when Ren had called me up <clears throat> and asked if I'd want to be a clinician. Of course, so I became first clinician. Well, after Ren passed away, Ren Jr., Ren Sr. and Ren Jr. didn't get along real well, but Ren Jr. came back, who was also a metallurgist and a genius, uh, came back to run the factory, and Joan, his daughter, ran the, the business. So I get a call from, from Ren Jr., and he says, listen, I want to I design a new, a new horn. I want a horn that, you know, that's new, because there was the B series and the X series for all those years in Shilke. So he said, uh, when can you come back here for like a week or something? And I had, I forget when it wasn't, I had some open time. So I, they flew me back. So for a solid week, maybe it was eight or nine days, every day they're putting different things together and they got numbers written on them with, with a marking pen. So the valve section has the number, the bell has the number, the lead pipe has the number, and there's all these different combinations and we're trying all this stuff. And, and, and um, they're putting it, they put it together and I immediately, I'm playing it and say, no, I don't like that. Or ah, the bell feels pretty good, but the lead pipe doesn't. And you know, cause uh, from, from hanging with Ren so much, he taught me an awful lot about trumpet design. So while I can't give you spe specific specifications, I know exactly what I want in, when I'm playing a horn and I know what, a, what I want a horn to do. And also I know what works best for other people. Mm -hmm. That's important. You don't design a horn just for you if you're designing for a company. You've got to think about designing, are other people going to like playing this too? So he and I worked on this and it so happened, Wayne's New Wayne Newton's trumpet section came in one day and so Johnny Madrid and a couple of guys tried it. Buddy Rich's trumpet section came in one day. They were trying some of the stuff. I forget, a bunch of different people came in during that week. So anyway, we worked on that thing for a week. And what we did was design the S series. And oh. the very first S was an S32, the medium large. Okay. Before the S, uh, S, um, oh, I just lost the numbers, 22 and, and 42. Uh, which go opposite because the 22 is smaller than the, the 42 is smaller, the 22 is bigger, I think. I can't remember now. Anyway, uh, but I played the S32. So, um, and I, in Fattis still plays at the S series, at right. Fattis horn, which is a great horn. And um, so we designed that horn and they put it out immediately. It just started selling like mad. Everybody was loving it. So anyway, I was, uh, along with Ren Schilke, I was a designer of the S32. And um, I was, played that horn for 13 years, 12 or 13 years. And then this is like my history with companies. And people say, some, some guys switch companies all the time. Well, I have switched companies, but I've been with companies for a long time. Right. And, and so being with Schilke was a lot of prestige and no work because they were small, they couldn't afford to support clinics, you know, they treated me great. But then uh, uh, Dale Thompson and Mike Bennett and a couple of people at Yamaha uh, were, were really talking to me about wanting me to come with Yamaha. Bobby Shu was busy doing so much stuff that he wasn't doing a lot of clinics and Alan Vizzini wasn't doing too many clinics back then. And, um, uh, and they wanted somebody who could be like a full-time clinician. 
And uh, um, so the funny thing is that, you know, Ren Shoki designed the Yamaha brass way back okay. in the late 60s. They were flying him to, to Tokyo, I mean, to Hamamatsu. And he designed the Tokyo's, the, 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 the Yamaha brass. At one point when I was playing Shoki, he said, you might think about going with Yamaha. I think these guys are going to be really big. <laughs> you know, and, and, but I said, no, I don't want to play a Japanese horn. So it's an interesting chain of events that later on, then the Yamaha people started talking to me. And, uh, uh, and, and so I explained to Joan and Ren, I said, you know, I love everything, but this, this is a business decision. They're willing to really put me out and do a bunch of clinics. And, and Ren understood perfectly. Joan got a little mad at me. So, so she said, well, we're taking your name off the 13A4 mouthpiece. And I said, you think after 26 years, people won't know that's my mouthpiece? <laughs> and, and since then, Joan and I, you know, we made up before she passed away, but she was a little perturbed. But anyway, so I went with Yamaha. And one of the things with Yamaha was I got to design my own horn. And they said, you got to use parts we already have. So I went to the factory in Grand Rapids, played they literally laid out all the horns. I didn't want to know what they were. I didn't look at them. I picked them up and played. I figured out what I liked and didn't like about different things. Picked out like I had done with the showpiece. I picked out, but this is stuff that was already being built. So I picked out lead pipe, valve section, tuning slide, bell. And they sent all this stuff to Bob Malone and Bob looked at it and said, this ain't gonna work. I said, Bob, I, I know it'll work. Please just put it together. And this is, you know, when he was doing all the custom work. Right. And, and I, I have to say, he was, he was really nice about it because he put it together and had first, right away, had some of the, the guys that work in his shop try it. And these guys said, this is the best Yamaha there is. This horn is unbelievable. And he actually called me and said, okay, you win. I was wrong. <laughs> and, and of course they put it out, but that's the only horn that at that point that had not been designed in Hamamatsu. There was a little political thing going on. They didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And because Bobby's was actually designed in Hamamatsu with Bobby helping. And uh, so Mike Bennett went over to Japan and they had a meeting and they said, no, we want to put it out. And he said, look, it, I want this horn out. I will order a hundred of them right now. Oh, yeah. He said, yeah, hundred right now. He ordered the hundred. They sold. Then, it, then Jens Lindemann started using it with Canadian brass when they went back to Yamaha. Pretty soon in Canada, people are wanting. I want that Vax horn, man. I like that Vax horn. And no, no, no. It's only for American market. So then Alan, uh, uh, the the head of Yamaha for Canada, goes to Yamamatsu and says, "I want it up here." So he said, "He said the same thing. I'll buy fifty of them right now." So they had me fly up to Canada. We did a two-week tour across Canada and sold all 50 of them in two weeks. Oh, nice. And, and so, and I played the Yamaha for, I think, also 13 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then things changed and, and the people that were at the top had left and uh, it became sort of more of a business thing that I was seeing than a music thing. And that's when I decided to leave Yamaha and won't go, I mean, could get long and long and long. And then Tom Getson found out that I had left Yamaha because Dick Ackwright called him and told him. So that's how I got with, with Getson. 
was that Tom called me up and said, okay, well, you could build your own horn also. So I've been very lucky because I've designed now one, two, three, four, five horns that have actually been put out on the market. Yeah. And and each company that I've been with, I've been with, I think Getson was the shortest, that was 11 years. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and now I've been with Warburton for what, six or seven years. It's that long. Yeah. I'm pretty sure something like that. I think it's six years, and of course, and it, the, Terry named my horn that, that I helped him design the Vaccinator. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's got to have an angle on that, you know. <laughs> but but one of the things that I've that I'm really uh, thrilled about is the fact that all those years ago, Ren Schilke took the time to sit me down and show me horns and show me parts and have me play things and say. This is, and he would go, Ren was so knowledgeable. If somebody said uh, a certain note, so A of the staff doesn't feel good. He would put his hands on the bell someplace or on the lead button and he'd press, now play. And it would found, sound fine. And then he'd do some tweaking, whether it was braces or whatever. This guy was so unbelievable, you know? And so that's where I learned all this stuff. And I got to say, part of the pleasure in my life has been that I've been able to design horns and the fact that they've sold well because other people liked them too. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, uh, you know, we have had the opportunity to spend time together at, uh, at shows and uh, both of us uh, working with, uh, with Terry and, and Walburton. And that was one thing that I noticed. Well, well, first of all, the first thing I noticed about you when you were uh were at the shows was just your genuine love for helping people. You know, it just came through. You know, you you just you, you go to some people's booths or you know people are trying to sell you stuff and they're trying to sell your product. So it's not just you know, hey, you need to buy my mouthpiece, you need to buy my horn. You legitimately were uh, very passionate about finding what worked for people, and you had just this this uncanny sense of of how to make little tweaks. And so, uh, you know, I think that that that's that's something that not everybody has because a lot of people have the passion, but they don't have the knowledge, the specific knowledge of of what makes something work. It's just like, well, well, this is what works for me. But you seem to have a very good grasp of both the mechanics. Of uh, of playing and the structure and the the science behind the horn, so that's that's a really great combination. So you know, it's funny because it, in the Warburton booth, first of all, up until the time that I that, that I uh, uh, you know joined Warburton, I basically played everything on the same mouthpiece all my life. It was the thirteen A four A or the Marcinkowitz uh, uh, Vax number one. Uh, there were two Marcinkowitzes, but the, the number two was built when I had had oral surgery and it was a little smaller to help me through that. But other than that, I basically played the same, and still I've played the same basic mouthpiece design for now, what, 60 years? I just have not been a mouthpiece changer very much. But I've had to go through a lot of stuff because of oral surgeries, you know, be, just because of some medical things. So that I have. I have gone through problems with with playing that a lot of great players have never had to go through. And 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 because I had to study how when I had when I had oral surgery like I have no teeth back here now at all 
and these are implants and this is a cap. So I've had a lot of problems and each time I've had to work through it. I know at one time in 1999, I think it was, when I had a bunch of, I had five teeth pulled and I couldn't play a high C and I had to sit there and I had to think, what am I going to do? And I remember I honestly did it one day. I looked in the mirror and I said, you better get this together because you don't know how to do anything else, <laughs> you know? And so uh, in, in some ways, what you're saying is, yes, I have a knowledge, but, uh, but I do, I, first of all, I love teaching. That's why when I got off the Kenton Band, I didn't go to New York. I didn't go to LA for the studios. I wanted to become a full-time clinician because I love teaching. But the, but the other part of it that is, even with the Warburton, the whole box of Warburton mouthpieces, I've studied them and it's amazing to me how many people I've been able to fit with mouthpieces. I've sold a lot more Warburton mouthpieces of other sizes than my sizes. And it's like you say, you look at somebody's mouthpiece, you watch them play, and then you say, okay, if you were going to make a change, because most of the time if they're, if they're there, they want to think about making a change, why do you want to make a change? Exactly. And, I, you know, and, and, and the first thing I say is, one of the reasons you give me cannot be play, that I want to play higher. <laughs> can't, that can't be one of the reasons. It has to do with sound, if it has to do with flexibility, if it has to do with endurance, if, all that stuff. I don't want to know about you want to be a high note player, <laughs> you know. And so I've been, I've been able to, at the shows and at my clinics, I've been able to sit down with somebody and say, okay, let me look at your mouthpiece, then figure out, okay, what's sort of close in a Warburton mouthpiece, and then say, what do you want changed? What do you, what kind of change do you want? Do you want it narrower? Do you want it wider? Do you want a flatter rim? Do you want it deeper? Do you want it shallower? Give me some ideas, and then we work from there. And sometimes what I end up with is not what they told me. And they yeah, had the wrong idea about exactly how to get to where they wanted to be. Right. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I, you're really right. I really enjoy working with people with that whole War, Warburton kit. I mean, I've really enjoyed getting to know it so that I can just now I can sort of look at their mouthpiece, look at them play, and within a few minutes, start getting close. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that uh, you can create like a baseline and then make your variations off of that. And whether it be a mouthpiece or be a horn uh, or, or anything in life, as we go back to that whole concept of, you know, what it takes to be good at one thing is what it takes to be good at anything. It's actually uh, one of my favorite sayings is uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. And, you know, when, when you look at uh, when you're trying to help somebody, you know, be fit for a mouthpiece, if they're looking to buy a new horn, if they're just whatever they're trying to do, it's the question process that you go through. It's not, you know, just do this, but it's, well, if you're trying, if you, if you are looking for something new, that means you're unhappy with something. What is it that you're unhappy with? And a lot of people never go through that really deep questioning. I, I use the process I call a Y5 for anything, which is if you want to make any change in your life, you need to set, start with 
why and then after you answer that why you ask why to that answer and you keep going until you get to that one deep emotional like when you give that answer you feel it in your whole body your whole essence is like this is the reason then you know where you need to be you know what you need to adjust but most of the time it's I want to play higher or I, I want to have an orchestral sound, whatever the hell that is. Or, you know, there's always some uh, superficial answer. It's diving down and diving deep. That's that's where where the, the truth lies. And so, yeah, I think that that your approach is just so spot on. And I wish so many more people took that. And I'll tell you an interesting one uh, on, on one of the chat rooms. A question came up. Uh, we were we were talking about you know people now teaching online and stuff, and somebody came up with this idea. Well, I I would pay to to, to watch a pro practice. I would pay you know just to watch a pro practice, and I got on and I wasn't scathing at all. But but I said I don't think that's a good idea. I say if you're going to improve, there has to be interaction. So just like we were talking about with the mouthpiece or the horn thing, there has to be interaction. The student has to play, the teacher has to play, and there has to be dialogue. Just happening to listen to somebody, and then it was funny because a couple other pros got on and, you, and said, you think I want somebody to hear me making all those mistakes before I... <laughs> but but that's the whole point. The learning, whether it's learning whatever, like you say, whatever it is learning, whatever kind of learning it is, it has to be interactive. You know, if you, you think about uh, back in high school or college and uh, a teacher that just lectured to the class and never asked the kids questions about stuff, never got the kids to comment, and half the kids in, in the class are falling asleep. You know, it, the whole idea of improvement the whole idea of teaching to me is interactivity it's it's working together for a common goal it's not just me look at me you know and i'll tell you what to do no i want to find out from the student what they want to do what they want to do better what they want to get out of stuff and sometimes they'll i'll give them an exercise and they'll say what's what good is this and I'll say, and I'll give them a whole explanation. This and this and this are why you're going to do this exercise, and this and this and this are what you're going to get out of the exercise if you do it properly. And I think that way of teaching is so much more effective than just, okay, play something for me. Okay, that was good. Let's go on to something else. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things that, that has always struck me about you is the you know, that passion for teaching and sharing. And I know you've just done, like you said, you, you, you would, pre you preferred to go into that full-time clinician position as opposed to, uh, you know, going back, going into the studio and, and maybe, you know, or even just being a, a, a full-time road dog. Uh, but, uh, I think that's one of the things that's, uh, that's missing is there are, there's there aren't as many people with that level of knowledge and experience that are out there sharing it on this day-to-day -day basis out you know, out there giving it to the 
giving it to the kids in, in that in the reality of what it takes to be a, a professional musician and so uh what is it that that drives you to to be a teacher i mean what what's has it always been a part of who you are, or is that just something that you came upon later in life? Oh, I think it's always been a part of who I was. Uh, uh, partly because I enjoyed the learning, partly because I had great teachers who really were uh, involved. You know, it wasn't like you just go and get a lesson and leave. They were really involved. A couple of them, uh, one teacher, Norm Tompak, uh, when I was in fact, this is interesting. He came right after there was a there was a trumpet teacher in the Bay Area, Hans Ogelman, who was older, and he'd been in the Berlin Symphony. And his idea of teaching was you stood up at attention and played your lesson. He sat on a stool, like a bar stool, with a ruler. And if you made a mistake, whap, cross your fingers. And I was like 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. I was just, you know, I, I, could, I just couldn't take it. It was, just, I dreaded going to lessons. So my mom finally said, yeah, we're through with this guy. And uh, I forget how, how we found Norm. It was through some friends. Norm had, had uh, been the director of the, of the uh, jazz band at, at um, Fort Ord in Monterey when he was in the Army. He'd written for Basie and Woody Herman. He had actually uh, played... Uh, trumpet with some of the uh, big bands earlier on, but then he, while he was in college, had a football accident and smashed his mouth, and so he stopped playing trumpet as much for a living, but he did write for many years. And then he became smart and, and got a big, big-time business job and became fairly well-to-do, but always loved music, always kept playing. Well, so he taught me right after Hans Allemann, everything changed was like he was so nice and so into what I was doing and uh, and and knew could see what what I wanted to do with the horn so to this day he we still stayed in touch and he's been the producer on on all of my big band recordings so I mean we've been best friends and, and business partners uh, for all these years um, and and then uh, after Norm uh, Jewel Lord, who was the orchestra and dance band director at Oakland High School, I uh, studied with him for, for a while, very positive. And then Dick Lauder, who had been trump play trumpet player on Les Brown's band, uh, great trumpet player, also great cellist. Uh, and the interesting thing is, my, one of my best friends in high school, and still to this day, is Fred Radke, who leads the Harry James Band. And Fred and I in high school used to have these arguments about He'd say, oh, Harry James is the best. Harry James, Stan Kenton's the best band ever. We used to have arguments about that. So you think about the odds against, here's two little high school kids at the same high school end up playing lead trumpet on those bands and then end up leading those bands, you know? And so it's, it's pretty interesting. And then when Fred and I were seniors, Don Jacoby came to Oakland High. And if there were two kids that were pretty good players, then uh, Don would have those two kids play, he had a jazzed up uh, trio of Carnival of Venice that he would play on, on the concert. So the two kids that played the jazzed up trio with him on the concert were me and Fred Radke. So it sort of, you know, things tie together so well. Um, you know, anyway, so uh, uh, um, I, went and I just lost my train of thought. What was I saying before? <laughs> 
You were talking about Fred. Yeah, well, I mean, and... And, and the teaching. Yeah, and, and so, that's right. And so, from all of that, from all those great teachers, then in, in, in college, Gordon Finlay, who'd been the solo cornetist with the Navy band uh, for 20 years, came to University of Pacific and became the band, uh, band director and trumpet instructor. And he almost became like a second father to me, sort of like what Norton Tompak had been. And uh, uh, I was a trumpet major. I was the first actual trumpet major at the conservatory. And um, uh, I would have two, three lessons a week. He would just, anytime he thought he wanted me, you know, to, to work with stuff, we would go in and have a lesson. And the interesting thing is that after the first semester, he came my sophomore year, after the first semester, he saw something in me. I think it was maybe my work ethic, maybe it was just how much I loved playing the horn. So he says to me in a lesson, what do you really want to do? He said, I want to play trumpet. Because I was doing like everybody, you know, getting a degree in music education to fall back on in case you didn't make it as a pro, wrong reason. So he marches me over to the administration building without talking to my parents, switches my major to trumpet, as we're walking back to his studio, he says, you're going to make it now. And I said, what do you mean I'm going to make it now? And he laughs and he says, you don't have anything to fall back on. <laughs> but he saw, I think, in me. And so I think from all of that influence, even back then, I was loving teaching and I was teaching, you know, high school kids when I was in college and I was a counselor at Pacific Music Camp. And then when we started doing the, uh, the, when we played with, when I was in the Navy show band, we did a lot of clinics and concerts in schools. I loved working with the kids. Of course, on the Kenton band, we were doing clinics three, four, five days a week. We were in, in schools doing clinics. And, you know, and I thought during that time, I thought, you know, this is really what I want to do. I want to go into schools. I don't necessarily want to get a degree in education and teach in one school, but I really enjoy doing this whole clinician thing. And then Don Jacoby really helped me out. And then later Clark Terry helped me out. And uh, that's how I became a clinician and decided to, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, when I was in high school and that was the big thing, you know, the bands would be on tour, you know, Kenton, Maynard and, you know, whoever else. And they'd come into your high school or the college to do a, a concert and there was always master classes going on so you know uh i i guess you know now that the that big bands aren't touring as much as they used to you don't get the advantage of doing that as much but uh yeah that that inspired a whole generation of players and i was one of those people so um there yeah there's a place for it so thing is that that uh stan really started all that he was the first one that really started bringing his band into schools uh, all the time, and he started that whole idea of of summer clinics, and uh, and also part he was part of the reason that the National Association of Jazz Educators got started. He was one of the founding people, and he actually put money into it to help it get started. And of course, now with the Stan Kenton Legacy Orchestra, when we tour, ninety five percent of all our jobs are in high schools and colleges because we're thinking the same thing that Stan did. If the music is going to continue, we have to get to the young people to get them turned on. Yeah, absolutely. You got to build a new generation. So, man, we could go on for hours and hours and hours on some of the stuff. But so what we're going to do, we're going to wrap up with what I call uh, 
speed studies. If you remember the old Nagel speed studies book, the, the finger busters, the knuckle busters, uh, just kind of things are going to go all over the place. So these questions are not going to follow any specific pattern. Uh, they are going to jump, jump from topic to topic. And what I need you to do is just give me your best and quickest answer. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. Mike, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. First question. What's your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Quigley Down Under. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that one in ages. Okay. What is your favorite food? Chicken soup. Oh, man. You're good at this. You're, you're too good at this. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. Lacquer, plated, or brass? Lacquer plated. I'm not a fan of, of raw brass. Okay, very, very cool. Uh, next question. I got to think about this for you. Uh, if you were to do anything other than be a trumpet player and clinician, what would it be? Boy, that's a hard one. A race car driver or an off-road racer? I knew that was going to come up at some point. It had to. Cars have been part of my life forever sports cars you know now jeeps and i have a jeep and a racer and and love off-roading and, and i've had motorcycles and uh, uh i used to do i used to do a lot of autocrossing racing sports cars i guess that would be it that would be it okay so you're gonna have a dinner party and you're allowed to invite any three living people doesn't have to be a musician Anybody in the world, any three living people, who would they be? Boy, now see that's that's a rough one. Um, and it doesn't have to be me. You can you can exclude me. Okay. Well, I'm trying to. Boy, oh boy. Uh, th three people for a dinner party. Do I have to have never met them, or can I? Oh yeah, yeah. Anybody you want. You have you have your choice of anyone in the world. I think George Geiger, one of them, uh, still alive. Hmm. I'll tell you why, because he's been so important and such a good guy, Ryan Anthony. Okay. Uh, and an actor. Now I got to think Tom Selleck. Quickly. You can talk about quickly. Yes, and we could talk about all the great, you know, I love Blue Bloods. Uh, you could talk about how he grew that mustache. <laughs> all right, who has been your biggest influence outside of the world of music? Whew. Probably my father. You know, my father was owned his own business his whole life worked so hard it was unbelievable um uh was successful enough to be able to pay the bills own his own home at the end not have any you know home payments uh treated my mother great treated my brother and i great um yeah i would say probably my father okay what is your favorite drink as i have my little minor booze here Booze or non-booze? I guess it doesn't make any You pick. It can be one of each. Let's see. Probably, first of all, a Bloody Mary 
with extra hot sauce and extra Worcestershire sauce. Oh man. Mm. Okay. Um, and I, another alcoholic one would be as expensive as possible. Um, um, oh, just come on, just went out of my head. Um, port. Ah, a good port. Thought you could. I thought you were going to go the, the Clark Terry route of... Really old. Ah, I thought you were going to go the Clark Terry route of dry sack. Yeah, no, I, you know what? I used to drink dry sack with Clark, and it was always too sweet for me. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see now. Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? One superpower. God, I think the the what just came up was the end of the movie An Unfinished Life with uh, Robert Redford and Jennifer Lopez and uh, oh come on the black actor that I love so much I just lost his name and he said that as, as he died he flew over this whole I think to fly. And I don't know why when you said that, I just remember the end of this movie where you're like way up above everything and you're flying over everything, seeing everything from way up high. Well, if you get that Jeep going fast enough, you, you might be able to do that. <laughs> okay, uh, let's switch back into the trumpet world uh, for these next few questions. So these are definitely going to be trumpet related. Uh, the first question is, what do you think is the most overrated aspect of trumpet playing high notes simple as that everybody wants to play high notes and look i know that from the early 70s i was one of the people that created that whole that whole thing you know so you're out there in front and and you're you're playing all these high note solos and there was a oh wow but you know to me, you know, the old adage that 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 uh, most of the money on trumpet is made below high C. <laughs> and um, I, the way I look at it when we talk about high notes and clinics, I, I liken it to uh, if you have a really good cake and you have frosting. I love frosting. I don't think I would like a cake that was made entirely of frosting. What's wrong with you, man? Pardon me? I said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I got to have a little cake in there, too. And so, so the search for high notes, first of all, to me, high notes come from endurance, not the other way around. You don't kill yourself with high notes in order to gain endurance. You work on endurance with flexibilities and characteristic studies and all these things. Get to where you can really play a long time and have good chops, and that will help build your, your range. But yeah, I think the most overrated, the most sought after thing that, that it's overdone is high notes. Okay, so opposite end, what do you think the most underrated aspect of playing is? Musicianship. I think that we, when we play, the most important thing is to be a great musician, not a great trumpet player. And I think that that comes from studying beauty, studying people who have played beautiful, beautiful music 
And when you play, whether you're reading a part, whether you're playing a jazz chorus, you know, whether you're playing lead trumpet, whatever, can you make beautiful music? Can you play music that's stylistically correct, that has good time, good phrasing, you know? And, and, and like with improvisation, I hear an awful lot of young people who've studied all the Coltrane fourth slicks and they've learned every scale that fits every chord and their solos sound like exercises. Yeah. And I tell them, go back and listen to some of the soloists from the 30s, some of them that weren't that well trained, and listen to the beauty of their improvised solos. They're telling a story. It's not just notes, it's musical phrases, and it's the same as writing a book. You have sentences, you have paragraphs, you have chapters, you have a whole story. And that has to be in music too. Yeah, yeah, it's communication. Yep. Okay. Um, if you were able to travel back in time to a younger Mike and give him one piece of advice about music, what would it be? <sighs> I think even though I've talked about it, it would probably be to spend more time practicing because I would go through my practicing stuff and I'd learn my lesson stuff and then I'd just start playing tunes, and which was great too. But I used to love, you know, way before um, um, uh, play along records. Uh, my joke is that by the time I was 12 or 13, I'd already played with Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan. I'd played with all of them because I played with their records. Right. You know, and, and I learned, that's one of the great things that I did, I learned tunes. I knew a lot of tunes even when I was young, just from memory. I'd never seen them in a fate book or anything. So, well, maybe that's the wrong thing because that part of my playing really, really sort of made who I am as far as being able to be a jazz player. I know lots and lots of tunes. So maybe that was the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> I did practice. I did do what I was supposed to do. But then I always switched to the other stuff. Let me think if there's anything else I could tell myself as a young person. Um, no, I don't think so. I was going to say learn from your elders, but I think I was very lucky in that I got to play with a lot of players who were a lot older than me, who were great players, and I had the sense to listen to what they were doing. Uh, here's one thing that that while not going back to retell myself, but one of the things that I discovered was that I enjoyed listening a lot more when I stopped comparing myself to who I was listening to. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Trust me, I've compared myself to so many people, you included, and... Uh... Yeah, it's great to great to, to listen to other people to get a feeling and to, and to have an aspiration, but uh, you know it's like that that famous saying in Clark Terry, you know, uh, imitate, uh, assimilate, innovate, and yeah, I think so many of us uh, we get stuck. We 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 we're we're listening to people, and, it, and it's hard for us to understand that there's a process that goes on, and, and 
we just feel like because we can't sound like, you know, uh, a Mike Vax or a, a Maynard Ferguson or a Wayne Bergeron that, you know, we're, we're not worthy, but, you know. I'll tell you a great one about that. My, I think my junior year in high school, my, our band director took us to hear a Mendez clinic, mm -hmm. which was unbelievable. I still have a record he signed for me. And um, uh, in the car going home, he had a station wagon, so there were a lot of us in. And in the, in the station wagon going home after the clinic, a bunch of the guys were saying, oh, that makes me want to throw my horn away, or that makes me want to put the horn in the case. Of, and, and I said, that's ridiculous. It makes me want to practice more. And my teacher said that night, he knew I was going to be a professional musician. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That, I mean, that, and that's it. It's, uh, you get inspired either positively uh, or you get a, you just get pissed off enough, <laughs> like why can't I sound like that? And and, and you you buckle down. So that is awesome. Okay, so uh, we know what you would, you would tell your, yourself about music, but uh, you can go back and tell yourself one thing about life. What's one big lesson that that you wish that that you might have learned a little earlier in life? Oh, lessons I learned in life, probably probably to not be quite as fixated on music and my business of music as I am because I'm a fanatic, fanatic, fanatic. And so maybe the thing would be that even though we have great relationship, uh, that I should have spent a little more time with Peggy, my wife, and Leslie, my daughter, rather than being on the road as much as I was or spending time in my office hours and hours and hours and hours working on booking and stuff like that. So that might be it, just that I should have spent a little more time with family. Okay, well, that's a great lesson for everybody, actually. So, Mike, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure and an honor to be with you, uh, even though we're just doing it virtually as my cat walks through the background. <laughs> He's a jazz cat. So, uh, yeah, like I said, man, we could go for hours on. She have so many great stories and maybe we'll have to, to get a part two uh, from you and to, to catch up with some of the other stuff. So, yeah, I would, I would love to talk about some stuff. And, you know, this is a trumpet thing, but I would love to talk to you about uh, Dick Shearer, you know, one of my probably my favorite trombone players of all time. So friends ever. Yeah. So anyway, thanks. There's the whole the whole my whole time in New Orleans, too, which is a whole. Different oh, yeah. Area. Yeah. There, there's so many stories that you have, man. And I just would love to get into them. But we'll have to save those for a second, uh, the second season. So so uh, thanks again, Mike, for everything. And thank you all for joining us here on The Hang. And peace and slide grease. We are out. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jose. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. 
Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang. <laughs>